Father in heaven, Lord, as we come to you once again, we're asking that you send the Holy Spirit to inspire our minds once more. Please illuminate it with the Word of God. And Father, please help us to understand the topic of the testimony of Jesus Christ this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be finishing off Revelation 12, and we'll be spending one hour on the last verse. I feel that it's this important to look at this. 45 minutes to an hour. The testimony of Jesus. Now, we didn't spend too much time on the commandments, so I'm going to go back a little bit in verse 17, of course. And we're going to cover these two characteristics, okay? Let's read verse 17 of Revelation 12 once more. Revelation 12, verse 17, the Bible says, And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So two characteristics that separate everyone else from what is the remnant. They keep the commandments of God, and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now let's look at this commandments for quickly. Let's go to Revelation 22 and verse 14. How important is actually the keeping of the commandments? General Christianity have downplayed it until, of course, much recently when we had the Ten Commandments Day. But the Bible has always been the same. It has always been the same on its stand. It doesn't change. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 14. How important is actually the keeping of the commandments? Let's read this. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. How important is it? Friends, it becomes a salvational issue. If we keep the commandments, if we keep the commandments, we have right to the tree of life and we may enter in to the heavenly city. So friends, don't let anybody ever persuade you on any other thing that it's okay to sin, henceforth not keeping the commandments or transgressing them. It's not. Sin and Jesus do not go together. They do not. Clear, isn't it? But then, of course, Revelation 14, 12, speaking of the 144,000. So friends, if we're to strive to be like the 144,000, we ought to strive to be what the Bible tells us that they are doing. Revelation 14, 12, the Bible says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So, through and through, the importance of keeping the commandments of God is certainly up there. It's the first thing that is listed and mentioned when it comes to the remnant and the 144,000. They keep the commandments of God. Now, coming to this testimony of Jesus Christ, let's go to Matthew 5.17. Jesus is speaking here, <clears throat> and he illustrates it in a very good way about what the testimony of Jesus is. Let's go to Matthew 5 and verse 17. <clears throat> Excuse me. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17 Jesus says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not to come, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So Jesus Christ said, I didn't come to destroy the law, the Ten Commandments, or the prophets, or could I say, the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
Now, how do I know that the testimony of Jesus Christ is related to the prophets? Well, let's go to John 5, 39. John 5, 39. Now, we've looked at this text several times already, and you should be able to repeat it off the top of your head already. But it says, Ye search the Scriptures, for in them ye think is what? Eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. So the testament, the testimony of Jesus Christ should testify of Jesus. But really, Jesus was referring here to what? The Scriptures or the Bible. So in a large degree, the testimony of Jesus Christ is referring to the Bible, the Scriptures, the writings of the prophets. Okay? But moving on, Revelation 1-2 just shows us the first instance where testimony of Jesus Christ was used in Revelation, Revelation 1-2. The Bible says, Who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. So John here also bear record of the word of God. But one more text, Revelation 19-10. Next instance where the testimony of Jesus Christ is used. Revelation 19-10 defines for us what is the testimony of Jesus Christ? Let's look at this. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10. The Bible says, And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is what? The spirit of prophecy. So the testimony of Jesus equals the spirit of prophecy. Now here's a question, friends. Who has the testimony of Jesus Christ according to Revelation 19 and verse 10? Who has it? The what? The 144,000 is not mentioned here. Who has the testimony of Jesus Christ? Hmm? The remnant is not mentioned here either. Oh, friends, this is the thing. We have to learn to give our answer right from the Bible. Who has the testimony of Jesus? Thy fellow servant and who? Thy brethren. Okay? Class 101 in how to study the Bible. Get Bible answers. So who has the testimony of Jesus Christ? Thy fellow servant and? Thy brethren. Now, where have we heard servant before? Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So the servants of God will have the testimony of Jesus Christ, but also the brethren. So, next thing. Revelation 22, verse 8 and 9. Who are the brethren? Revelation 22 Verse 8 and 9. Let's go there. Revelation 22, verse 8 and 9. Who are the brethren? Now, I want you to give me a Bible answer to tell me who are the brethren, okay? Verse 8 and 9. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See, thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant 
and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. Who are the brethren? The prophets. Excellent. So, the brethren are the prophets who have the testimony of Jesus Christ, or what we call the spirit of prophecy. Okay? So, in a large degree, the servants of God are prophets. Are prophets. But here, we want to understand that at least the prophets have the spirit of prophecy, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, if we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5 to 7, it also speaks about the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's go there, 1 Corinthians. We're endeavoring to find out what this testimony of Jesus Christ relates to. As f- in order to be part of the remnant, we need to understand this. It's testimony of Jesus Christ, the second characteristic of the remnant. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and starting with verse 5. We're reading all the way to verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. That in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. Verse 6. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the testimony of Jesus Christ was given so that they come behind in no what? No gift. The testimony of Jesus Christ is a gift, or a gift of prophecy. But in a greater degree, we have to ask ourselves this question. What are these gifts that were given? What were these gifts that were given? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8. You know, friends, I love doing this study on the testimony of Jesus Christ, but God is so clear, so clear. The Bible is so consistent about this. But let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8. What gift did Jesus give? Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8. The Bible says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And then verse 9 and 10 are in parenthesis. And in verse 11, he describes what these gifts were. So before Jesus Christ went to heaven, he left behind gifts. Let's read Ephesians 4.11 and find out what these gifts are. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. So what are the gifts that were left behind? They were apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So these were the five gifts, at least, that we know of, according to Ephesians, that Jesus Christ left behind before he went up to heaven, before his ascension. They were apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now here's my question. Today, do we have apostles? Yes or no? What's the definition of an apostle? What's the definition of an apostle? Does anybody know? It's simply a missionary. So, do we have missionaries? Yeah. Do we have evangelists? Definitely. We even got a college of evangelism. Do we have pastors? Oh, yeah. Do we have teachers? Certainly. 
Do we have prophets? We should, right? Now, here's the thing. If we go on, if we read in verse 12, why did he place these gifts there? Verse 12. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. So really, these gifts were given by Jesus before he went up to heaven so that he would establish the church. And throughout every age and throughout every generation, there needs to be a firm foundation for God's church. And God gave these gifts to establish his church. Now, how long were they to remain in the church? Verse 13 of Ephesians 4. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So they were to remain there until we come into a what? Unity of the faith, a perfect man. Now, we're never going to be really totally united in faith until the church becomes triumphant, until the tares are sifted out of the remnant church. And only then we'll come into a unity of the faith. Only then Jesus Christ can finish the mystery of God, which is to unite heaven and earth. So really, the gifts are going to remain there until the end of time. But what, what was its purpose? Verse 14 gives us a further explanation of why God gave apostles, pastors, prophets, teachers, and evangelists. Let's look at verse 14. That henceforth be no more children, that we be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slate of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. The purpose of these five gifts, at least, that Jesus Christ was to give was to establish his church in the doctrines and faith. So the winds of doctrine, when the new theology starts to blow, we have these five anchors that will help us to be established in the faith. We need apostles. We need evangelists. We need teachers and pastors. We need prophets. But the question is, what happened to the prophets? What happened to the prophets? Where are they? You see, in the early church, there were existed prophets. There were prophets when the church was being established. Let's look at this, okay? Let's go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. In God's early church, there were prophets that existed. And as we read the Bible, we, we commonly see prophets throughout every age of God's working. Let's go to Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. The Bible says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets. There you go. So there were prophets that existed at Antioch. Now let's go over to Acts chapter 21 and verse 9. Acts 21 and verse 9 also speaking about prophets, and the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. So there were prophets. One more, Acts chapter 2 and verse 17. 
Acts, the book of Acts is largely a recording of the early church and its establishment and the missionary journeys of Paul and also of Peter and several others, but mainly of Paul and how he went around preaching and establishing God's church among, among the Gentile nations. But here in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, the Bible says, And it shall come to pass in the day, last days, saith God. This is Peter speaking. He's prophesying. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall seed visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So in the last days, there were to be prophets too. But where are they? What happened? Why did prophets disappear from the church? You see, Jeremiah chapter 26, verses 4 to 5, will give us a clue. And we're going to line this text up with several texts. Because seemingly, prophets have disappeared from the churches. But we have to ask the question, why? Because you see, prophets are needed for establishing our faith. So in order for our faith to be established and for us to come into unity of faith and to be a perfect man, we need the prophet. It's important. Let's, let's read Jeremiah chapter 26 and verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, And thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, If ye will not hearken to me, to walk in my law which I have set before you, to hearken to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent unto you, both rising up early and sending them, but ye have not hearkened. Now what did Jeremiah put together with the prophets? Did you see it? Did you catch it? It says, to walk in my law, which I've set before you. You see, friends, consistently throughout the Bible, the law and the prophets have gone together. No law, no prophets. Keeping of the law, prophets are given back and there are visions. Keep this in mind as we look at a few more texts, okay? We're going to see consistently throughout the Bible. Let's go to Lamentations, just the book over from Jeremiah to our right. Lamentations chapter 2 and verse 9. Keeping in mind that the law and the prophets always go together. Lamentations 2, 9. Verse 9, the Bible says, Her gates are sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles. The law is no more. Her prophets also find no vision from the Lord. Once again, law no more. Prophets find no vision. They cannot prophesy anymore. Law and prophets go together. Ezekiel chapter 7 and verse 26. Let's go there. Ezekiel chapter 7 and verse 26. <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 7 and verse 26. The Bible says, Mischief shall come upon mischief, and rumor shall be upon rumor. Then shall they seek a vision of the prophet, but the law shall perish from the priest and counsel from the ancients. No law, no vision for the prophets. No prophets. Let's look at another text. Proverbs 29, 18. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18. 
Let's go here. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18. The Bible says, Where there is no vision, people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Who receives a vision? Prophets. In other translations, it says where there is no, what? Prophecies. The people perish. But happy is he that keepeth the law. So law, prophet, always going together. One more. Isaiah chapter 30. Just to show beyond any, any reasonable doubt, let's go to Isaiah chapter 30. And we want to see clearly here that the prophets are always together with the law. Okay? Verses 8 through 10. Isaiah chapter 30, verses 8 through 10. The Bible says, Now go, write it before them in a table, and note it in a book, that it may be for the, for the time to come forever and ever. Verse 9, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the what? Law of God. Verse 10, which say to the seers, see not. And to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things. Speak unto us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. So they don't want to hear the law of God. They don't want to hear the truth or the prophecies from the prophets. Speak, speak unto us what? Smooth things. Lying deceits or deception. So through and through, Throughout the Bible, we see that always the law and the prophets go together. So here's a question. What happened to the prophets? Why did the prophets disappear from the church? From 538 to 1798, the woman went into hiding for 1,260 years. And the Antichrist reigned during that time. In Daniel 7.25, it talks about that he shall reign for a time, times, and dividing of time, and he shall think to change times and laws. And when the law of God was utterly cast down, God took away his prophets. From 538 to 1798, we do not find prophets. They are non-existent. The reason being, the law or the Ten Commandments were cast down. The papacy tried to change it. In effect, he didn't, of course. We know that. But he tried. He thought to change times and laws. So as a result, no law equals no prophets. But since 1798, since the occurring of the deadly wound that we'll study tomorrow, the law has been somewhat resurrected and even the truth about the Sabbath has been brought back to full light. Around 1844, in fact, 1850, it was at the time that around that time that the Sabbath message was brought back to full light. And so it was in our understanding, since we've studied this consistently throughout, where there's no law, no prophets, when the law was to resurrect, God had to resurrect a prophet to combine with the law. How do I know? If you read Revelation 12, 17, and we've read this many times, but in this light now, let's reread it, okay? Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. Law, no law, no prophets. Law exists, prophets exist. Revelation 12, 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God, the law, and have the testimony of Jesus, the prophets. 
or the spirit of prophecy. So when God's people resurrected the Ten Commandments, when they kept the Ten Commandments, the law was to be, uh, the prophets were to be resurrected again and given back to the remnant church or God's true church. Because you've got to understand that since the beginning, God's true church has always existed. From Revelation 12, 1, the early church. So God's church was to be restored back to its original. So if we saw prophets in the early days, they have to exist today, friends. What happened? Are they existent? Well, you see, friends, there are many false prophets out there. Before we make any conclusion as to who this prophet is, and you must have one name and one name only in mind, there's a warning found in Matthew 24. Let's go there. Matthew chapter 24, and let's look at verse 5, 11, and 24. Okay? Matthew 24, starting in verse 5. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Verse 11. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And then going to verse 24. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Friends, there are a lot of false prophets out there. Two come to mind straight away. Jim Jones, David Koresh. David Koresh being, of course, the one closer to our time. But certainly there are many out there that are nameless. So friends, we have to test the prophets. And the only test that we can apply to is the test of the Bible. So... Just because a person claims themselves to be a prophet and even preaches the Word of God, it's not enough to show whether they are a true prophet or not. We need to test them. As you know, Satan quoted the Bible when he was tempting Jesus Christ. So quoting the Bible even then is not enough. So let's look at some tests. Tests of a true prophet, okay? And we're going to take tests taken from the Bible itself. Let's look at our first test. Jeremiah chapter 28 and verse 9. Jeremiah chapter 28 and verse 9. Jeremiah 28 verse 9, the Bible says, The prophet which prophesieth of peace, when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then shall the prophet be known that the Lord hath truly sent him. So when a prophet says something is going to pass, and it actually comes to pass, then we know that the Lord has sent him. That's the first test. First of a few, okay? Prophetic accuracy is what we call it. So when we prophesy things that come to pass, then we know that the Lord has sent that person. Second test. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 3. Let's go there first. Deuteronomy chapter 13. Verses 1 through 3. Second test of a true prophet. We have two Bible texts here. We're first looking at Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. The Bible says, If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, 
and giveth thee a sign or a wonder. And the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God proveth you to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So it's saying here that even when a prophet prophesies and it comes to pass, the first one, prophetic accuracy, it's not enough to say that it's from God. Because if he says, let us go after other gods, then you know it's not a, after a, a prophet from God. It's not a true prophet. So even though prophetic accuracy, even though 100% he's right of the time, it's not enough to show that he's a true prophet. But what then? Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. Although prophetic accuracy is necessary, I mean, if, if this prophet prophesies and nothing comes to pass, you really got to wonder whether they're a prophet at all or not, correct? Because a prophet tells us the future. So in, in a certain respect, what he or she says has to come to pass. But it's not enough to say that they are a true prophet. What else? Verse 20 of Isaiah chapter 8. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. To the law, the Ten Commandments. If the prophet goes against the Ten Commandments, not a true prophet. And to the testimony, the testimony of all the prophets, the whole Bible. To the law and to the Bible. If they speak not according to this, if they are not consistent with what the Bible says, then there's no light in them. So friends, this demands us to have a greater understanding of what the Bible says personally. Because a preacher may preach from a pulpit, yet he may be wrong. So we need to understand the Bible for ourselves. What do you say? Amen to that, right? So if you don't know your Bible, you need to understand it now, more than ever. Because if anything, in our last days, many false prophets shall abound. So secondly, biblical faithfulness. This prophet must speak not just according to the law, but also to everything found written in the Bible. And moreover, what he or she prophesies must come to pass. Third one. First John chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. Let's go there. First John chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. Third test of a prophet. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. The Bible says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. We have to try the spirits. Verse 2. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Got to confess Jesus Christ. Has to exalt Jesus Christ that he came in the flesh. Just like what John the Baptist was saying on the side of Jordan. He was saying what? Behold the Lamb of God. This person has to exalt Jesus Christ and not point to themselves. Especially the ministry on earth. The gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the third one. 
Fourth one, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. We don't need to go to these, but we know that 1 John 3, 4 is defining the wages of sin is... Pardon me, that's not the wages of sin. Sin is a transgression of the law. Now, Romans 6, 23 is defining that the wages of sin is death. Now, the prophet must, what? Point to commandment keeping. Why? Because if they're not saving us from death, then what's the purpose of them? They've got to save us from death. And if we aren't keeping the commandments of God, we are not being saved from death. So the prophet must be commandment-keeping. Okay? The fourth test. With text 1 John 3, 4 and Romans 6, 23. Now the last one, Matthew chapter 7. Let's go there. Jesus is speaking. The last test of a true prophet. prophet uh, test number 5. Matthew chapter 7, we're reading verses 15, 16, and 20. Starting with verse 15, the Bible says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Verse 16, Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? And then it reiterates in verse 20, Wherefore, by their fruits, you shall know them. And friends, you can hide your life. You can hide who you are in a private life. But when you get up in the pulpit and you preach and you're creating th- uh, thistles and thorns, you know that you are not of God. If a person's fruits, if a pastor was to stand up and he was to shepherd the church and all he's producing is thorns and thistles, you know that person is not of God. Your fruits cannot lie what sort of person you are, correct? You may hide it for a certain time, but eventually your fruits are going to show what manner of person you are. So this fifth one is called spiritual fruitage. We have to test the prophet to see what sort of fruits he or she produces. So here's our five tests. Prophetic accuracy, biblical faithfulness, exalts Jesus, commandment-keeping, and spiritual fruitage. These are the five tests, and many more out there, but these are just the five that I wanted to share with you. Now, of course, we believe as a Seventh-day Adventist church that Ellen G. White is our prophet, and I believe the same too, but she must stand the five tests at least that we have given it. And in no way am I biased because we have taken these tests from the Bible, Okay? So that has been clear with everybody. And of course, we can apply this test to everybody that comes in through the door who claims themselves to be prophets. Now, it's very interesting. I just want to share this interesting experience with you. I was in Georgia. I was doing campus ministry. And there was one day that I was out there. And they, I'm the chaplain. I was the chaplain for the campus there of the Adventist campus group anyways. And they did this little health fair. And they decided to put this little table out there with this big sign. Any Bible questions, just come right here. And the whole day I was sitting there, nobody came. Absolutely nobody. I was just sitting there reading my book the whole day. And 10 minutes before we were about to close down, this man comes up to me. I'm a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor. And I looked at him. Have a seat. So he sat down. We were talking And midway while we were talking, 
his eyes kept darting off and looking back at me. And I thought there was, must be some activity going on behind. So I, I looked behind, what's he looking at? He's like, it's okay, I see spirits. They're, in f- they're fiery. And I was like, oh, okay, all right. So then after that, later, he pulled out a cigarette, started lighting it up. I was like, he must have seen the shock on my face, but he's like, don't take notice of this. It's okay. Right? I was like, oh, okay. You know, by the fruit of a person, you can tell what sort of character they are. You need to test every person. And I showed him. I said, do you know the Ten Commandments tells us that we should not kill? And friend, you're killing your body. You see, you're like all other Christians. You judge me from the outside. So, you see, there are these sorts of people out there, friends. And I just want to share this real-life experience with you just to show you that, you know, I've encountered them as well. And some of them are more obvious to detect than others. But if anything, we need to know our Bibles. That's the only way that we're going to be able to clearly see the true and false prophets. But in Ellen White, these five tests have been fulfilled. First, prophetic accuracy. Now, I just want you to take down the reference, okay? You're not going to have time to write everything down. So I'm going to apologize in advance. But let's go. Prophetic accuracy. Ministry of Healing, page 327, written over 100 years ago. Back then, in their days, they were using tobacco as treatment for sick people. And Ellen White received light on this, and she wrote, Tobacco is a slow, insidious, but most malignant poison, and certainly she is correct. Today, we have, it has been proved that tobacco is the one of the most addicting forms of drugs out there. Tobacco. One of the hardest to get off. So, it is a slow, insidious, but most malignant poison. What she said came to pass. And many other things that she prophesied of that have come to pass. Secondly, biblical faithfulness. In Great Controversy, page 7, this is what she writes. In Great Controversy, page 7, she says, The Holy Scriptures are to be accepted as an authoritative, infallible revelation of His will. She holds to the Bible and the Bible only. A revelation of His will. Infallible. Another one. Great Controversy, page 595. God will have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible only as the standard of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms. So she points to the Bible and the Bible only. Biblical faithfulness. Truly, she was a study of the Bible. And she pointed all those to the Bible and the Bible only. Thirdly, she exalted Jesus. Gospel worker, that's what GW stands for. Gospel worker, page 160. She, cite, she, she writes, Lift up Jesus, you that teach the people. Lift him up in sermon, in song, in prayer. She lifts up Jesus, exalts him, and exalts him. <clears throat> in every aspect of our worship, even in prayer. Fourthly, Commandment keeping. Evangelism, page 244. She writes, We have decided to keep God's commandments and live and preserve His law as the apple of our eye. What is to be the apple of our eye? What was it? 
the law, God's commandments. Now, what is the apple of our eye? What is it describing when it says that the law is the apple of my eye? What does it mean, apple of my eye? It's what my eye desires most. The apple of my eye. Okay, you see that? The center of what our affections are. We ought to keep the law as the apple of our eye. Let men rail out against the law of God and trample His commandments, keeping people under their feet. Can they do it and live? It is impossible. God has His measurement of character, and it is those who obey Him and live, and those who keep His law as the apple of their eye that He preserves. Excuse me. So certainly, Ellen G. White raised up the Ten Commandments. She pointed people to the keeping of the commandments. Now, this last one is the part that I enjoy most, and I hope that you will find it quite interesting too, is a spiritual fruitage. What I've taken is secular sources, non-Adventist sources on Ellen G. White. Okay? Now, I'm going to give you time to write these down. First one is taken from St. Helens, California, Star Magazine. July 23, 1915, the year of Ellen G. White's death. And the Star Magazine writes this, Her death marks the calling of another noted leader in religious thought and whose almost 90 years were full to overflowing with good deeds, kind words, and earnest prayers for all mankind. This is what's written of her. Secular newspaper or magazine. St. Helens, California, Star Magazine, July 23, 1915. Here's another one. New York City, Independent, 1915. Same year as well. New York City, Independent, 1915. It says here, Here is a notable record, and she deserved great honor. She showed no spiritual pride, and she sought no filthy lucre. She lived the life and did the work of a worthy prophetess. Secular newspaper. Secular magazine, I guess. New York City Independent, 1915. Wrote that about Ellen G. White. Here's another quote. Now, this is one of my favorites. Women have been honored on Americans' postage stamps for more than 100 years, starting with one woman who was not an American, Queen Isabella, in 1893. Since then, 86 women have been honored, ranging from Martha Washington to Marilyn Monroe. Also, many women authors like Louisa May Alcott, Emily Dickinson. But I can name an American woman, author who has never been honored thus, though her writings have been translated into 148 languages, more than Marx or Tolstoy, more than Agatha Christie, more than William Shakespeare. Only now is the world coming to appreciate her recommended prescription for optimum spiritual and physical health, Ellen White. Ellen White, you don't know her? Get to know her. And this is coming from a non-Adventist. His name, Paul Harvey Broadcast, September 25, 1997. Less than 10 years ago. Don't know Ellen White? 
You better get to know her. Shame on you if you don't. <clears throat> Paul Harvey broadcast, September 25, 1997. Now, this is the last one here. By James C. Dobson. Who knows James Dobson? Anybody familiar with James Dobson? He's a popular radio show um, broadcast on a lot of things ranging from the family. Focus on the family is what he's most famous for. But he deals with politics and things like that as well. Non-Adventist, and he says this, I greatly appreciate you sharing Ellen G. White's material with me. And watch this. I have all of her books. They are excellent. If she were alive today, she and I would no doubt share a kindred spirit. Do you have all of Ellen G. White's books? If you don't, James Dobson just put you to shame. Because you're an Adventist, and so is she. James Dobson wasn't. So, friends, if you're tempted to buy anything, if you're tempted to go to Borders or, or Barnes & Noble, get out of there. Go to ABC first and get all her books. Because if you don't, this quote has just put you to shame. If you're Adventist through and through, friends, I recommend that you start off with Ellen G. White. Because personally, I believe her to be our prophet for our time. When God raised up a group of people to take the standard of the Ten Commandments, to put them high above their heads, God gave Ellen G. White to the church, to the remnant church. <clears throat> and if you, being part of the remnant church, do not believe in Ellen G. White, you are not part of the remnant church then. You cannot be a Seventh-day Adventist and not believe in Ellen G. White or else you're not part of the remnant because you're really ineffectively, inadvertently saying that you don't believe in the prophet. But then that takes you off the list of Revelation 12, 17. These are they what? Keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So friends, Ellen G. White, don't know her? Get to know her. Put aside all your secular authors. Put them all aside. Today, let's study the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. If our churches did that, we would see revival in our churches. But it has to begin here, in our heart. We need to study her writings. Because they are at the same level with the Bible. Why do I say that? She's our prophet. These are all written by prophets. Men and women of all ages who are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Ellen White is no less different. She's just more modern. So, this text brings us to the conclusion of the whole matter in the great controversy between the woman and the dragon. It was over the law and the prophets. And today, as ever, Satan, <clears throat> Satan, through the dragon and the serpent, is attacking the Bible and the spirit of prophecy and God's commandments. So, friends, this is it. These are they which keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. May God bless you. And this is our conclusion to Revelation 12. Let's bow for a word of prayer, shall we? <clears throat> Let's kneel. <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you for giving us the gift of prophecy. 
Father, thank you for giving us the Bible and also the inspired writings of Ellen G. White. But Lord, forgive us if we have failed to study those words. Forgive us for neglecting the words of the prophets. But Lord, I know that time lingers in mercy for all of us still. So Lord, while there is yet time in our lives, please help us to, as much as possible, study the writings of your prophets. And so Lord, I pray that you be with us, bless us, and help us to face the temptations that come after leaving this place. Keep us faithful to the very end, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.